0: Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast. The podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness.
1: Welcome everyone to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I am Ben Shaberman, the host of your podcast and Senior Director of Scientific Outreach at the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And today I'm really pleased to have with me Daniel Chung. Daniel is Chief Medical Officer at Sparing Vision and his role will be to lead the clinical development and research around an emerging therapy called SPVN-06. It's a gene agnostic gene therapy for RP, Usher syndrome, and potentially some other conditions. And Dan will also lead the education of medical and patient communities. And I know, Dan, that's a role you did quite a bit at SPARC, the educational side. But just a little background on Dr. Chung. He received his medical degree from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1994 and undertook extensive postgraduate training at the National Eye Institute, Summa Health Systems, and Cole Eye Institute at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland. And I have to ask, I grew up in Cleveland, when were you in Cleveland?
0: So that was, I believe, um, 2000 to 2000 and no, uh, let's, let's back up here. I'm getting my dates mixed up. Uh, I think that was, um, 2001 to 2003. I did a fellowship at the Cleveland clinic in pediatric ophthalmology and oculogenetics research. So I was there two years, uh, and it was just really a time where uh, my mentor, Elias Travolsi really introduced me to the whole world of inherited retinal diseases. And it was just fascinating. And the need for therapeutics was extremely high. And it was just something that really intrigued me. Uh, I had done a retinal gene fellowship, uh, at the national eye Institute, uh, prior, uh, to my residency and fellowship training. And I think that was just very complimentary of that. Uh, and from there on, uh, I had the opportunity really to do more work around gene therapy with uh, Gene Bennett and that group at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's really how all this really got started.
1: Sure. And we'll talk a little more about Spark in, in a minute or so. But I'm curious, when you were a kid growing up or maybe a little older in high school or college, did you know you wanted to be in medicine? Did you have an interest in ophthalmology or
0: vision? I really liked the idea of ophthalmology because it gave you an opportunity to do fine microsurgery using a microscope and things of that nature. It also gave you an opportunity to develop patient relationships in the clinic. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. And Because I had an interest in research, it was just a great springboard into the world of research as well, and doing a lot of basic science, uh, translational work, and things of that nature. So that's really what uh, the whole package was quite interesting. Now, obviously, I didn't know that at the very get go, but as I got more into ophthalmology, uh, that was becoming more and more apparent that this is definitely a role and a field that I wanted to be a part of. That's
1: great. And so let's go back to Spark and just to let um, our listeners know, in case they don't know, is that um, Spark was a spinoff of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to help get the gene therapy, which eventually became Luxturna across the finish line. And if I'm correct, Spark was founded in 2013. Correct. And so you came out of the University of Pennsylvania to join Spark. Is that Correct.
0: That, that's correct. So while I was at University of Pennsylvania, I, I was also uh, uh, working some at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That's where the clinical trial really started, uh, both Phase One and Phase Three, prior to the formation of Spark. And so I was involved in those clinical development uh, stages uh, at Chop. And so that's what really introduced me to the whole thing. And obviously, uh, working with uh, Dr. Bennett and Gene Bennett, uh, who really uh, was one of the key drivers of the whole. RPE65 story, uh, it was kind of a natural uh, progression to get into the clinical trials and, and be a part of that. Right.
1: Yeah. That must've been quite an experience to watch that RPE65 gene therapy move through the clinic and, and get such traumatic results. Do you remember what it was like when in December of 2017, the gene therapy, which again became Luxturna, Um, got FDA approval this is a gene therapy that had restored vision in kids and young adults and what was that like for you and spark when you crossed the finish
0: line well obviously it was a huge milestone in the field of ophthalmology and especially inherited retinal diseases that really did not have any therapeutic um, modality prior to that Uh, and although it was just one of the 270 different genes, and it only represented one of them. It was really a breakthrough for those patients, and really hope for the whole community. I think for the entire team, it was just a huge sense of accomplishment, and I was just very fortunate to play, you know, a small role in the whole development. And I thought of the. Uh, founders really who set all this in motion and to uh, just uh, see their elation and all the hard work that they had put in uh, to see the uh, therapeutic actually come to life and now be available for patients. So it was obviously a very jubilant day and uh, things of that nature. Uh, But we also thought that there's a lot of hard work left to do because the drug was approved, but now we have to get it to patients. And we have to educate patients and educate physicians and and optometrists and the whole healthcare field about what uh, the product can do. Uh, So there was still quite a bit more work to do, but that day was extremely special. Uh, And I'll always remember that. Uh, I'll remember the FDA advisory board meeting down. In Maryland, and everything that went on with that, and like I say, I was just uh, very uh, humbled and privileged to be a small part of that.
1: Well, Spark was lucky to have you, and in terms of education, Dan, that's where our paths crossed very often at seminars and meetings that the foundation held. We we presented together, and I can say you you do a great job communicating the challenging science. So that. And that was part of your role at Spark. What else did you do at Spark besides the
0: education component? Uh, well, thanks for the kind words there. Uh, so I was the first ophthalmologist and first person in medical affairs that uh, Spark had hired, and as you said, one of my main responsibilities was the educational role, not only uh, externally but also internally, in training folks internally on different aspects of ophthalmology and other related uh, topics. But it really. Balloon from there where you became somewhat of a uh, subject matter expert uh, for the internal workings of the community and uh, things of that nature. So I really was privileged that I could work with a lot of different groups uh, within Spark, whether it was marketing and commercial or uh, even in some of the payer discussions and obviously in clinical. Uh, And then, of course, there was my background that I had at at Penn doing a lot of basic science research. Uh, I could definitely... uh, Uh, Lend a voice into our preclinical world uh, that was going on at the time. Uh, But obviously we had great expertise in all these fields, uh, but I was just uh, able to contribute a little bit uh, of my knowledge uh, for all of them.
1: Right. And I've, I've heard and seen over the years, people talk about the uh, multi-luminance mobility test and I know you and I have talked about this test, the maze that patients navigated, but you've gotten credit for helping develop that. That's that's a big deal, a new endpoint that... Um, the FDA has validated for
0: um, these clinical trials? Well, that was definitely a a lot of work with a lot of uh, members of a huge team that brought that forward. And I think the whole impetus was that there really was a dearth of approved or um, even, I guess, um, relevant endpoints in ophthalmology uh, other than visual acuity. But visual acuity was really not a great factor uh, in the sense of inherited retinal diseases, because as you know, inherited retinal diseases, many of them them uh, rod cone dystrophies. You can have very small visual fields, but yet you still have great visual acuity. And, and so walking around with a 10 degree field is not what we would consider normal vision. And we, so we tried to get the idea that there's something called functional vision, which is the vision that you and I use every day to carry out activities of daily living. And how do we capture that in a quantifiable manner? And, and so that was what really set us on that path to try and getting uh, to try and get a mobility test, a functional vision test that incorporated different aspects of uh, visual function uh, into a quantifiable measure. So there were a ton of people behind this, working all different kinds of areas, and uh, you know I was just very, again, very fortunate to be a part of that team.
1: And, and I will say that years later now, I see a lot of companies are using variations of that test. When I see them do their presentations in their clinical trials, there's another maze, there's another obstacle course. Right. So, um, that, the development of that test really is um, helping a lot of people advance their therapies. So let's switch to sparing vision. And what, what drew you to sparing vision?
0: Well, I, obviously I, I enjoyed being at Spark and I was there for over six years, uh, but it became a time where there were other modalities and other therapeutic strategies that were coming apparent. And uh, I thought that it might be interesting to uh, go into one of those that was doing something, a gene agnostic in a sense, uh, where they weren't really talking about gene augmentation or, or gene replacement, uh, replacing the gene that had the underlying mutation or variant, uh, but something that was independent of that genetic etiology. And the reality is, is that there are over 270 different genes for inherited retinal diseases. There's something like 60 to 70 different uh, rod I mean, retinitis pigmentosa genes. And unfortunately, the development of each one of those genes could take decades and tons of resources. And unfortunately, some are relatively rare that may not get the attention of a lot of uh, groups. And um, this might be a way of filling a unmet need uh, in a little more broad way. Uh, than uh, just single gene replacement, which is still fantastic. And we always advocate that uh, if they have good safety and and good efficacy results. Uh, But this would be another Way of potentially um, alleviating some of the deficits in uh, vision from some of these uh, genetic disorders. Now, obviously, gene replacement—if you look at Luxturna—is really more about restoration of function, whereas we are thinking a little more about preserving uh, and delaying the progression of deterioration.
1: Right, and so the the lead candidate that. The founders of Spark, or I'm sorry, the founders of Sparing Vision have been working on for many, many years is called Raw Derived Cone Viability Factor. Can you tell us how that works and who it might benefit?
0: Yeah, so this really came from uh, 20 years ago uh, or so uh, Two uh, individuals, uh, Jose Sahel, uh, who is a very well-known inherited retinal disease ophthalmologist uh, um, based uh, back then at the Institut de la Vizion in Paris. And now he's the chairman at the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, along with his colleague, Terry Lillard. They basically asked the question, why do all these rod specific genes that cause deficits in rods then lead to cone destruction. And and so after doing a lot of research, they were able to identify a factor known as rod derived cone viability factor. And what they found was that this factor is actually produced by rods and it is there to maintain the health and the function of the cones. But as you know, in rod cone dystrophy, the rods are dying. So that product is no longer being produced. And so by adding that back in, they've shown in different model rodent models of retinitis uh, retinized pigmentosa, they were able to slow the generation of cone cells. And there are really two mechanisms that it, that works on one is uh, really about uh, facilitating glucose uptake and aerobic glycolysis, leading to an increase in protein production. And this basically protects the cone uh, structure and function. And there's uh, another isoform that's also there that uh, is one of the more powerful antioxidants, because as you know, the retina is an area of high oxidative stress. So these two factors work synergistically, and they help to protect the function of the cone photoreceptors. So therefore, you maintain at least uh, central vision and, uh, you know, daytime vision, color vision, things of that nature that cone photoreceptors are doing. Right. So it's all about saving the cones. It yes. is about saving the cones. And right. and that's why uh, this the patient population will probably be slightly later uh, in uh, the disease progression than maybe some of the monogenic uh, gene augmentation therapies. Um, and and so but we're, we're, there's still a lot of work to be done, and we're still obviously in the preclinical stages, although we, we hope to uh, get into um, our application to the regulatory agencies by the end of the year. Uh, so that's really what spbn uh, 6 is all about. Right.
1: And if you can preserve even a small number of cones for a lot of people, that still gives them some visual acuity, the ability to see faces and navigate somewhat. I've heard Dr. Sahel talk about this a lot, that if you can just save, again, even a small population of cones, you may not be an airline pilot, you may not be able to drive, but you can still function pretty independently. So so that's uh, very exciting.
0: Just uh, tell us briefly how this therapy is delivered. So right now we're Under the idea that this would be a subretinal injection targeting uh, different cells in the posterior uh, retina. Uh, So basically uh, the cone photoreceptors and uh, the the RPE. And... So obviously, uh, subretinal injections has been widely developed and the safety profile has been uh, relatively good. And there's a lot of data on it right now. Uh, So at this point, that is uh, the process that we plan to do. That's great.
1: So recently, I want to say it's been the past week or two. Um, Sparing Vision announced the acquisition of a new technology, um, a new therapeutic approach that also addresses cones, but a little differently.
0: And can you tell us about that? Sure. I think you're referring to uh, SBVN20. Yeah. And this is a recent acquisition. Uh, Basically it's another gene agnostic approach of saving uh, or um, in this case, it's actually the idea of restoring functioning cones and it's targeting something that uh, the, the developers of this. So this is coming out of uh, Denise DeCaro's lab uh, and her her work. And I'm sure many other people are involved in this. Uh, But uh, they've coined the term of dormant cones and dormant cones are simply cones that no longer have function, but physically they're still present. Their outer segments uh, are mostly gone. And basically what they do is the idea of a channel protein uh, known as GERC2. And this basically is uh, allows the restoration of the short phototransduction cascade, and this can prolong visual acuity and color vision. Uh, so it's basically... Um, enhancing or bringing back some of that cone photoreceptor function.
1: Right. So as I understand it, you have cones that may stop working, but they're still alive. And this new therapy SPVN 20 can resurrect those cones to make them light sensitive again. So the first therapy we were talking about is all about preserving the cones that are still working The second therapy, if I have this correct, is all about getting cones that have stopped working to start working again.
0: Correct. And they're both gene um, agnostic in that sense, because they're not working on the underlying genetic mechanism. Right. Right. And is there potential for these two to work together? Well, obviously, that's definitely a, a possibility. I think right now we're trying to get uh, the preclinical packages together on both of these separately, and obviously uh, later down the road there are other considerations of you know potentially maybe they have a synergistic effect. Right.
1: How do you know when somebody has cones that are dormant, that they've stopped working, but they may be resurrectable if that's a
0: word? A lot of that is there are obviously functional tests that will show deficits in your photopic response and your, you know, things that you look for when color vision. I mean, when central vision goes, things like color vision, visual acuity, things of that nature. But then there's also the structural evaluations that you can do, OCT and other forms of visualizing the retina and possibly these cells uh, still being there. So you put those two together and you can get an idea of where you are. Uh, when it comes to the functionality of these cone cells. Interesting. So good, good imaging studies will help identify
1: the patients that are most amenable yeah. to the
0: approach. Yeah, absolutely. Functional and structural studies together will okay um, be good in determining that. Got it.
1: So just to reiterate, both of these approaches are gene agnostic. So it shouldn't matter what mutated gene somebody has. And I know we're talking about, uh, at least at first, people with RP and I presume Usher syndrome, since Usher syndrome is RP just with hearing loss. Are there any other conditions that you think this approach may be amenable to?
0: Yeah, I think when it comes to being gene agnostic, it's relatively gene agnostic in a certain class of disease. So, you know, for SPVN uh, 06, we're looking at rod cone dystrophies, and an example of that is retinitis pigmentosa. And obviously the stage of disease is when the rods are no longer functioning because they're not producing the RDCVF anymore from the rod photoreceptors. And then we would intervene at that point when the cone cells are starting to uh, lose function. Uh, so it, it would be probably into the more moderate or progressive nature or severe state of uh, the disease. When when it comes to the other program, SPVN20 with GERC2, that might be uh, at a time where your cone cells are a little more advanced in their disease because we're really talking about non-functional cone cells and being able to restore function in those. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be with the GERC2. It's really looking at the cone cells themselves. So um, I think the idea is you know where can we intervene where cone function is um, at a deficit. And maybe we can look at restoring that as well.
1: Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there excited about the potential for both approaches. So thanks for the great work that Sparing Vision is doing and that you're now helping Sparing Vision do. I'm guessing we'll probably hear um, about progress later in 2021 as you get closer to that filing to, to launch a clinical trial. And uh, we at the Foundation Fighting Blindness, we actually fund Sparing Vision. So we're very excited about the potential for those therapies. We're very excited, Dan. (laughs) You're a part of the program now, and we will be sure to report on any developments there. So, Dan, that concludes my questions, my interview. I don't know if you have any parting thoughts or comments. Feel free to share.
0: Well, number one, Ben, I just appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for inviting me on this. And and as you know, in the world of gene therapy development and the retina, uh, it can take a little bit of time. So we want to make sure we do all the right things in our preclinical package and things like that. So uh, that's where we are today, and and hopefully we'll we'll get to the. Um, the uh, uh, regulatory submissions by the end of this year for spbn 06. And then obviously we're very early in the development of SPVN 20, but obviously uh, we'll keep the foundation definitely informed.
1: Well, thanks again, Dan. We appreciate your keeping us in the loop. And, and again, we're very excited about the work you and the rest of that great Sparing Vision team is doing so that's it for this podcast. I want to thank all the listeners for joining us to learn about uh, great emerging therapy coming through the pipeline. And remember if you have any questions or comments or just good cheer to send them along, You can uh, send those through email to podcast at fightingblindness.org. That's podcast at fightingblindness.org. Thank you again, Dr. Chung, for joining us. It's been great having you. My pleasure. And and we look forward to... uh, all our listeners out there joining for our next podcast.
0: Thank you. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.